It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, I was delighted when Pastor Bishop hit me up and asked me to come preach. Um, man, it's my pleasure, and I'm, I'm delighted to be here um, to really serve this brother. Not to reiterate everything that he has said, but everything he said is true, and he was being such a blessing in my life when I ran into this brother on campus. Um, I didn't know he was actually a leader in his department because of his humility and how he carried himself and the wisdom that he had. And man, his humility, I think, speaks volumes and carries volumes. And you see that just in his character, you see it in his, in his life, how he lives, um, shepherds his family. And you see it even within the uh, KBC and how he serves there. And so brother, you are so appreciated, man. I'm so grateful uh, for our relationship, man, and just the work that you are doing in the church, outside the church, in the family. I look, I observe, and I'm, there are times where I'd be like, man, I have done this, literally. Man, well, I wonder what Nate would say in this situation. Because I've asked Nate some questions in the past, and he's given me some good answers. And even with his guidance, uh, with situations I've been through, has been such a, such a solid rock in my life, and I appreciate it. And Darnisha as well, sister. And so... Yeah, I'm, I, Nate said I reside in Louisville. I, I, I used to live in Louisville, but I live in Lexington. Uh, that's where uh, my wife and I live. And so um, it's good to come here and throw a big blue nation in your face just a little bit. Um, but without further ado, I heard that. So Hebrews chapter 4, we're going to be in today. Hebrews chapter 4 will be in that text this morning. We're looking at verses 14 through 16, and as you turn there, um, what a blessing it is to serve four years as pastor of a church, and what a blessing it is to serve as pastor in any church uh, to do the Lord's work. And so I see that he is sustaining you, brother, and I pray that he continues to sustain you and bless and thrive this ministry here at Forest Baptist Church. And so we are in a, a strange season. Um, we are in some tough and perilous times, um, never, seen, never seen before in terms of the specific pandemic. And so I think and I hope and I pray that this word encourages us this morning as we try and make it through. Uh, many of us have lost hope to some degree. Many of us cannot see what's around the corner. Many of us are wondering and worrying and strain and stressing over a lot of situations that we just can't work out ourselves. And so, yes, the Lord, as Sister said, has slowed us down. And he slowed us down for a specific purpose. It's always for a specific purpose. So that we can see him ever so much more clearly. And so that we can trust him with so much more greater force and a tight grip that never loosens. And so what is the Lord trying to tell you, trying to tell us? in this season. If anything else, he's trying to tell us to hold on. He's trying to tell us to hold on to what? It's the title of my sermon. Hold on to your confession. Hold on to your confession. Hold fast your confession and approach the throne with confidence. You want to hold on fast, hold on tight to your confession and approach his throne with confidence, with boldness. There's nothing that we need more in this time than 
wisdom from the Lord, then grace from the Lord, then mercy from the Lord. And yes, he does give it freely, but the Lord does require us to do something. That's to seek and that's to ask. I remember James chapter 1 talks about ask for wisdom and he will give it. But what does he say? Ask with confidence. Don't doubt. So let me read this text for us and I'll get into it. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It reads as such. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for this moment in time. We thank you for your grace and mercy that is undeserved. But God, we thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, we have a relationship with you and that we even have the opportunity to pray to you and know that you will answer our prayers according to your will for your glory and for our good, God. And you do it for your own good pleasure. And so, God, I ask in this time, Father, through your word, that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your implanted word, that we wouldn't just be merely hearers of it, but we would be doers, Father, showing this world a glimpse of your grace and your mercy, a glimpse of your patience that ought to draw them to repentance to love you, and to believe in your son, Jesus the Christ. And so, God, rest, rule, and abide, hence now, forevermore. Amen. Hold fast your confession and approach the throne with boldness. This is going to be a question you already given the answer to, but the question is, have you ever had a moment in your life where you've gone through some tough and hard times? I can answer it for all of us, yes. We're going through it right now, unexpected. But some of us individually are going through specific situations, whether it be spiritually, whether it be emotionally, whether it be financially. It could be academics as well. But... The issue is, we need to get out of it, but we are afraid to do what? We're afraid to ask for help. We're unsure of how to go about seeking advice, seeking counsel. And so we tend to lean on our own understanding. But have you ever asked yourself, if you've looked back on the past, when you were going through it, or even now, why was I so apprehensive? Why was I so scared? Why was I so timid? Ask yourself that. Was it because you feared being rejected? 
being embarrassed, being seen as a beggar or a needy person. Maybe you didn't want your flaws to be exposed due to fear of people knowing that you didn't have it all together. Or maybe you thought that you couldn't be helped and that your issues were just far too great for anyone to handle. Is that you? If not all of us, most of us in this room have been there before, and some of us may be there even now. And some of you will be there in the future. See, this tension that I'm describing, this tension, this chasm that humans feel when in need is not an extraneous matter. No, it's, it's not foreign to the common man. It's actually natural. See, God has uniquely designed each and every one of us in such a way that we will always be in need of something. More specifically and primarily, we will always be in need forever of him. See, but here lies the problem, beloved. We don't always seek. We don't always ask and we don't always approach him. See, we get entangled in our web of pride and self-pity and self-condemnation, which as a result takes our eyes off the glorious giver and sustainer of all good things. And so we must remember that we are not in this world wrestling against the physical. No, no, no. In this world, we are wrestling against the flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when we think that it is us, that's the problem, or it's them, that's the problem, and that by our own might and our own will that we are going to try and correct our own problems and solve our own issues instead of entrusting in the Lord, well, what we're actually doing and saying is that Satan is now using us to get in our own way when we do that. He uses us to get in our own way in order to lure us off the path of righteousness, hoping that we would remain in a state of inertia, in a state of inactivity, in a state of non-asking, in a state of non-approaching, forgetting all about the omnipotent and sovereign God. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy to bridging this man-made gap between the helpless and the helper? It's Jesus. Simple as that. I'm going to cut across the field. The answer is Jesus. I ain't got to preach a 45-minute sermon to tell you what the answer is. The answer is Jesus. See, so let me give you just three main bullet points this morning and we'll get out of here. The answer is Jesus, but I'm going to tell you how and why the answer is Jesus. So the first point we're going to tackle is remember and believe. Remember and believe. Remember and believe. Point two is hold on tight. Hold on tight. Don't let go. Hold on tight. And the third is approach confidently. Approach confidently. Approach with confidence, with boldness. Hold on tight. Approach confidently. But the first one, remember and believe. So, 
Why is the first point? Remember, and believe. If you notice in the previous verses in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, 6 and 7, and verses 11, let me read it for us. It says in verse 2 and 3, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now verses 6 and 7 say, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what we see, we see that even though they heard and were reminded they did not believe and therefore did not enter his rest. Which is a spiritual rest, by the way. No longer having to labor on your own to achieve a personal righteousness before God. You don't have to do it on your own. Christ has already done it on their behalf. And he's already done it on our behalf. Hence the point, needing to remember and believe. Because we often forget the work that he's done prior and before us. We forget uh, the, his effect that lasts from generation to generation. We forget that. And so this is why we must remember what he has done on our behalf and believe that. But believe what? And why? Why, first, we believe, and why we believe, is because Jesus is our great high priest. In verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Perhaps the writer is penning this letter because there were some Jews who were claiming that Christianity had no priesthood like that of Aaron. Aaron being the high priest of the people of Israel, who was Moses' older brother. That Aaron. Maybe there were some Jews that believed that. But Jesus was and is superior to the priest of Aaron. You'll notice that in Exodus chapter 28. And he is superior in what? He's superior in both his character and his work which are very important to understand. See, the word great in the great high priest exalts his person and his office above all Levitical high priests of the Jews. It exalts it. But then it also mentions the fact that he has gone through the heavens. So the great high priest who has gone through the heavens. See, in his highly priestly function, 
into the holy of holies of the very presence of God, he has gone. But notice in the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish tabernacle, the high priest passed from the altar that was outside through the holy place. And so stepped behind the veil of the holies of holies is what the high priest would do. And but so our, our high priest, Jesus, is in a far more exalted Way He has pro- proceeded through what we would call the created heavens into the presence of God. Something that the previous high priest could not do. What they did was temporary. What Christ has done is everlasting. See, but that's just the first point. He's the great high priest. But the second point is, well, what we see next is that Jesus is called not just the great high priest, but the son of God. See, this statement identifies the historical Jesus as our high priest. It also presents Jesus as one who is perfectly combined with humanity and divinity in his ministry for lost sinners. See, his human name was Jesus, but in reality, he was the son of God. The mention of his name, Jesus, calls to mind his incarnation. The mentioning of his name, Jesus, calls to mind his life. The mentioning of his name, Jesus, calls to mind his sufferings. The mentioning of the name, Jesus, calls to mind the death here on earth. See, and then the Son of God references and expresses his deity, his divine nature. See, our high priest is infinitely great in his person and in his office. Philippians 2, 6 through 9 says, Though he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of God. Mm, mm, mm. And taking on the form of a servant, rather, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so remember and believe that Jesus is our great high priest. Don't just remember and believe. But the second major point was to hold on tight. To hold on tight. Because Jesus is our great high priest, beloved. We can hold firmly to the faith we profess. We can hold on tight to the faith that we profess because he is the great high priest. He has done what was already prophesied. He completed everything that the former prophet spoke of. He achieved the goal that God had given him on this earth. And so therefore, we can hold firm to it because it's done, it's completed, it's in stone. It will never go away. So it's true. And so holding to the faith does require some determination, doesn't it? Mm. It requires a little bit of determination on our, on our part because we're up against so much in this culture of the day. We have so many distractions. We have so many issues in this world that try to pull us away, that try to empty us of our faith, that try to take away that confession that we hold on so tight to. Jobs will pull on you, school will pull on you, people will pull on you. Other responsibilities and efforts will pull 
us in all sorts of directions. But in the midst of the pulling, in the midst of the tugging, the competing for your attention and, and trying to distract you, we better learn. We better learn how to take time to bless the Lord. We have to. See, we forget not all of his benefits, as the psalmist said. He says, who forgives all of our iniquity? Who heals all of our diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies us with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles? That's how we ought to bless the Lord. That's what we ought to remember. Psalm 103, because the greatness of Jesus as our high priest provides us an incentive to make that commitment and to draw near to him. You see, think about it. His greatness entices us to get close to him. His greatness ought to entice us to get intimate with him, to get closer. See, we are naturally drawn to greatness, though, right? It would seem only natural that the greatness of Christ would draw us to him, just like the greatness of mere human beings draws us to them. We always want to get up close to celebrities. We always want to get close to sports figures and, well, maybe not this president, but the past president, music artists, celebrities, you name it, people of influence we want to rub shoulders with. Yeah. And so we naturally do that. But sometimes we're not naturally want to get close with Jesus. And so when we do this, think about it, when we get up close with folks, what happens? We usually get some sense of euphoria when we experience greatness or get close to somebody. We have this high that happens. But what happens a few days later is that high wears off. That euphoria wears off until you meet somebody else. See, but what we must remember is that Jesus, who is greater, who has been exalted, who had humanity and deity, man, when you get close to him, that never wears off. That greatness, that euphoria, that high never wears off. He says it's everlasting. And so I would encourage us this morning to seek Jesus. Seek him. Get close to him if you actually believe in his greatness. Because he'll do it and he can help us in every single trial that's coming. And so we must hold on to that confession. To that confession. But how? In verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And so how can we hold fast to our faith, to our confession? What has God done to even make that possible? There's the answer in verse 15, as I just read. And the writer of Hebrews previously declared that the ability of Jesus to help the tempted, in chapter 2, verse 18, he says this, he says, for since, we, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, 
he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This is the reason why we can hold on to that. Because he has gone through what we have gone through, but yet, without sin, he was successful. And so, maybe he, the writer, maybe he tried to deal with some people who felt that Jesus was too distant from human need. And why, this may be why he has to remind them of this. Uh, you know, Jesus was tempted as well. You know, what, in the past, you know, Matthew chapter 4, he's in the wilderness, he tries to tempt him, and Jesus says, no, hey, man lives off the, uh, the, the bread, but not alone, but at the word of God. No, we need the word, okay? Jesus, hey, go, this can be your kingdom. Uh, no, he, he, he has to go against Satan multiple times. Satan tries to tempt him multiple times. And all the multiple times, Jesus is successful. And so what that says is, he has gone through all that we, all that we have gone through, and yet, he succeeded. And so the writer has to remind them of Jesus' success. And so here he states three facts about Jesus which would help readers know that Christ was no stranger. <laughs> Although uh, Christ was without sin, he is no stranger to the struggling that human beings face. See, first, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. See, he's able to identify with our infirmities. See, weaknesses is a broad enough term to include any form of human stumbling, bumbling, and failure. Christ has sympathy for the needy. Matthew tells us how Jesus, when he saw the crowds, had compassion on them because they were harassed and they were helpless. He says, like sheep without a shepherd. He, said, he sees a, a, a widow about to bury her son in Luke chapter 7. Sensing her pain, he says his heart was overflowed with compassion and he approached the funeral procession and resurrected that young man. He has compassion. And so he's able to sympathize. But not only is he able to sympathize, but secondly, Jesus Christ has been tempted in every way just as we are. See, this statement may mean that he faced, it may mean that he faced the full range of temptations that we face. But it does not mean that he was met with each specific type of temptation which we face. And what we notice is that there's three categories here. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. See, every sin common to man will fall under those three categories. See, and a dose of those three in some form or fashion fell on Jesus. See, unlike Eve, Jesus never yielded to sin. We know that he faced more intense temptation, but he never yielded. Most of us say yes to sin without sin even having to knock on our door. We can say yes to sin, and sin hadn't even thrown all the arrows at us yet. We just say, yeah, I bow down to you. We don't even give seeing time to even try and convince us. But yet Jesus resisted until he broke the power of Satan. But thirdly, we know he's able to sympathize. We know he's been tempted yet without sin. But thirdly, he was without sin specifically. See, Jesus was completely a human being. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17 says that, for he became like his brothers in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Wow. He becomes like us so that he can be a merciful and faithful high priest. So the question is, must a person experience sin in order to be human? 
must a person be like you and I in order to commune with you and I, in order to engage you and I? Well, the answer to that is no. Jesus had no sin or deceit in his life. No. Jesus could have chosen to sin, to give into temptation from Satan, through hunger, through desire of acclaim, through the lust of power. But the fact that he chose not to do this shows that he lived out the condition of sinlessness. That he battled constantly with Satan's temptations and claimed victory in the struggle with temptation. But, but what if Jesus had sinned? What if he had sinned? If Jesus had sinned by surrendering to temptation, he would have needed atonement. If Jesus had sinned, he would have no, been no better than the old priest who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. If Jesus had sinned, he would have lacked the qualification to secure redemption for us. See, any sin in Jesus' life would have made his sacrifice unacceptable. Now, back to the question. Must a person sin in order to commune with us? I ask that because some of us, we need to wash our minds of the notion that the only people that can relate to us and give us wise counsel are the ones who have gone through everything that we've gone through. That have experienced life exactly how we've experienced it. Nobody has to go through your same sin to tell you not to go into that sin. It's not about the person who is giving the truth. It's about the content of what they're giving. The truth is the truth. And to have that that posture, that disposition for us would be a bit arrogant and foolish. And then on the flip side of that, those of us who have been blessed not to go through life's blender shouldn't turn away from those who have. Because they have so much to offer as well. You see, all have sinned. Romans 3.23 remains the same and falling short of the glory of God. And so what that means is that all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. And so that means that we are all capable of mutually encouraging one another, just not perfectly, except one, our sinless Savior, who has provided for us a perfect redemption. You see, his victorious experience with temptation provides sympathy. It provides encouragement and victory for us in our temptation. See, our our few victories over temptation doesn't always make us sympathetic toward one another, though. It doesn't. It ought to humble us. But our victories shortly rejoiced. It's selfishly acknowledged. But sometimes it doesn't make us any more sympathetic. It doesn't make us any more humble. But it ought to, because when we see the next person going through it, we ought to be humble and approaching and helping and going to serve and love on them and carry them along the way. That's what personal trials and tribulations ought to help us to do. 
to consider others more highly than ourselves. That's why the scripture tells us, take heed lest ye fall. Take heed lest ye fall, because we can be there tomorrow. And so knowing that Christ has been tempted, tried and tested as you have, but yet without sin, we ought to allow this truth to comfort us this morning and to soften our hearts toward God and to tighten our grip on our confession of faith. And so we remember and we believe. Secondly, we hold on tight. We don't let it go. Thirdly, we approach with confidence. We approach with confidence. Verse 16. It says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, given the fact that we have a sinless Savior, what can we do? What do we do? What should our response to that be? Well, the response to knowing that should be that we first approach. We first approach. You don't mind approaching the person that you trust. You don't mind going to somebody that you know will give to you when you are in need. See, this word used in Hebrews 7 is used in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. It describes the movement specifically describes the movement into God's presence. See, we ought to come to God with all the reverence and all his worship demands. It's not going to God arrogantly. It's not going to God boasting in self. It's not going to God, as James talks about, double-minded. No, but we are going to God with confidence, spiritual confidence, knowing that the Father is ready to give us what he already has in store for us. It's like a water being in a jug, and if you hit the spigot, it just gushes out. That's what God is. He has grace. He has mercy. He has wisdom stored up for us. But as long as we don't hit that button, we'll never receive it. He says, it's here waiting for you. Just press the button. It's going to come right on out. And so we press that button with confidence, knowing that it's in there. And so we approach Firstly, but secondly, we come to the throne of grace. You must approach what? The throne of grace. You can approach a lot of things, but you ain't always approaching the right thing. And so we must approach the right thing, which is the throne of grace. And so this is a reverent reference to God's presence. It is the place where God gives out his free favor. The term describes an attitude more than it describes a place. And see, the seeking sinner will find this throne of grace. Okay, the throne of grace is neither Christ nor the throne of Christ, but the throne of God. The expression, however, is not intended to suggest that the throne which arose upon the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, but it suggests the throne of God in heaven. That's the throne of grace. See, it's the throne of grace because from it, flows to us the grace which is shaped through Christ the Son who is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And then thirdly, we can come with an attitude of confidence. We can come with an attitude of confidence. Although we must approach God with reverence, with reverence we can also enter his presence with freedom and without fear. 
See, the term describes a boldness based on an awareness that God has all the grace that we need. It is the attitude of customers coming into a store seeking an important item which they know is abundantly stocked. See, there's nothing like going into a place knowing that they have exactly what you need. There's nothing worse than going to a place and them not having what you need because then you got to drive around everywhere trying to find it. That's why I go to Amazon. But then, fourthly, we must come for the purpose. You see, when he says, come to me for specifically grace and mercy, well, then we go for grace and mercy. And so to go for your own selfish desires would make this null and void. So you go for the mercy and the grace because we need that more than anything in life. That will help us make it through these troubling times. See, God's mercy prescribes pardon for our many failures, and we fail every day. See, God's grace provides strength for the demands of God's service, which is very demanding on all of us every single day. See, verse 16 just says, uh, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are in a time of need, a huge time of need. But why do we go for that? Because the most important duty of the high priest of the Old Testament was to conduct the service on the Day of Atonement. This is why it's important. Because on the 10th day of the seventh month of every single year, they were trying to cleanse the, 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 the people of Israel's sin. Once a year. And only the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God. See, he would make a sacrifice for himself and for the people. And then he then would bring the blood of the animal to the holy of holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, God's throne. See, in Leviticus 16. And he did this to make atonement not only for himself, but for the people and for all of their sins committed during that year. Wouldn't that it'd be kind of bad that, you know, we could only get our sins forgiven once a year. Think about your sins get forgiven on January the 1st. January the 2nd, you sin. You got to wait a whole entire year to be forgiven. Think about the grief and the burden and the guilt and the shame one would have to endure going an entire year knowing that God has not forgiven them. Think about the position one might be in, questioning your salvation, questioning whether or not you're making it to heaven. Because you know that based on his forgiveness of our sins that we repent of and walk away from, that's the only way we can enter into his rest, right? So think about that, having to go an entire year with your sins not being forgiven. It was only once a year, and a specific person had to do it. You couldn't repent on your own. Your mom and your dad, you, you, you weren't saved by proxy. But the specific person had to do it. But here's the good news, beloved. <laughs> we no longer have that restriction. We no longer have that boundary. Sacrifices are no longer needed. Justice has already been satisfied because Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice. 
See, his shed blood on the cross became the sufficient atonement for all seeing the veil, which only the priest was permitted to go beyond is now torn. Christ is now our mediator. If you didn't already know that he is our sympathetic high priest. He is the only way to the Father. And we could go to him daily, boldly, broken, blemished, imperfect. Why? Because he taught us to. So that we could give or receive mercy and grace in our time of need. We go because he told us to. Because he has a gift for us that he is ready to give us. That he is ready for us to receive. Because we need the grace and we need the mercy more than anything. It ain't that we need money, we don't need more clothes, we don't need more houses, we don't need more time. But we need the grace and the mercy of the Lord. Because we need to show the grace and mercy to a dying world. That's the purpose. We need to show them the true and living God with their faith really should be lying in. And I close with this. Allow me to charge you this day with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died, and he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So hold fast your confession and approach the throne of grace with confidence that's only found in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word in Hebrews. God, may it be real to us. May it take root in us, Father. May it produce a harvest that is pleasing to your kingdom, Father. God, may birds not pluck them out, God, or the weeds choke it, God, or the sun burn it up, Father. But may it remain in us. And may we be doers of it, Father. Help us, God, to trust in you, to hold tightly to our confession of faith, which sustains us, God, until you return. Help us, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.